Thank you, Ref, uh, for the welcome and for the prayer. I was impressed with the fervency of the children's prayer. Did you see the little guy down here? He was, <laughs> it was uh, amazing, really. Uh, yeah, I said to Nancy yesterday, is she trembling with excitement about hearing something about doctrine? But uh, she said, no, not necessarily. <laughs> but uh, we're looking today at item six and seven, and I've actually provided you, if you didn't get one as you came in, just with an outline, it gives you item six and seven of the doctrinal statement, and that's helpful for you to be able to uh, yeah, remind yourselves of what it's about and the scriptures related to the foundation of that uh, doctrinal statement. And so I trust that you'll be able to uh, follow that as we go through. Uh, yeah, so we're looking at the two aspects of the doctrinal statement of the Christian community churches at, of uh, Victoria and Tasmania and the scriptures that we've had read for us today. The outline that you've got there, we're going to do a small introduction. We'll look at the heart of sin, the scope of sin, the impact of sin, and the end of sin. And that, uh, you've got that in your uh, brochure. I was tempted to remind you of the story about the pastor who went to a new church and, and uh, the, people were very excited about Bible teaching. And, uh, and as he left, he'd been talking about original sin, as we're going to do in a few moments. And as he left, uh, a lady at the door shook his hand and said, Brother, it's lovely to have you with us. We never knew what sin was until you came. And, uh, <laughs> and I hope you don't go out this morning uh, with the same sort of feeling. Uh, yeah, so uh, we're looking at what the Bible says about the fall of man, sin. The Bible is not, as you know, a disconnected set of stories, uh, each of which has a little moral uh, of how we're to live our lives. Primarily, the Bible is a single story telling us what is wrong with the human race, what God is going to do about it, and how history is going to end, how it's all going to turn out in the end. It's a single story, a redemptive story. We're looking at a small section of Genesis verses, uh, from chapter 1 and chapter 3 to give answers to what's wrong with the human race and what we believe is wrong. Why the human race is so prone to selfishness, to violence, to wars, to atrocity and corruption all the time. It was C.M. Joad who was a British philosopher, he lived in the early 20th century and he was an atheist but came back to faith later in life. And at the very end of his life, he wrote a book uh, called The Recovery of Belief. In it, he said this very fascinating thing. It is because we rejected the doctrine of original sin that we on the left were always being disillusioned by the behaviour of both the people and the nations and politicians and by the recurrent fact of war. We blamed the capitalists, the elites, and did not see it in the common people. He realised at the end, near the end of his life because he didn't believe in the doctrine of original sin. He didn't believe what the Bible said about the universality and the depth of sin in the human heart. He had based his whole life on a different view of human nature. 
He had set in motion social policies that didn't work. Basically, because he didn't have the biblical understanding of human nature, he wasn't able to navigate life as it was. So let's see what the Bible has to say about sin. Firstly, the heart of sin. What is sin again? Well, it's difficult to define sin. We often have heard the definitions about missing the mark, etc., not being able to give God glory. The concept of sin, in one sense, is so profound, you can't stick it into one single nutshell definition. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God. It's taking upon yourself prerogatives and rights that only God has. As soon as Adam and Eve eat the fruit, sin came into their lives and today we are seeing the results of this. When God says here in verse 11, did you eat of the tree I commanded you not to eat from? The man says, the woman did it. Just to show you, by the way, that man is not more sinful than the woman, when God turns to the woman and says, what do you... What do you have to say for yourself? She says, the serpent did it. And we'll get back to that in a moment. But here's there's equality here, if you like. Here's the point. When Adam says, she made me do it, send her to hell, give, my, give me another wife, basically you're talking to a holy God of the universe, what do you have to say for yourself? Take her. Sin is a willingness to throw anybody else under the bus to justify yourself. Sin is justifying yourself at the expense of other people, to feel superior to other people in order to have a self-image. I have to feel superior to other people. I have to expose other people. I have to exploit other people. Sin is saying your life is, your purpose is to enhance me, not my life to enhance yours. It's all about me. But this morning we're going to see that if you have that opinion, you'll be disillusioned because it's not about you at all. Your life to enhance me. I will drain you dry for my needs. I will disadvantage you so I can feel good about myself, so I can justify myself, so I can have significance and security. I want the significance and security of life. Philip Roth wrote a novel called The Human Stain, and that's his metaphor for evil. The novel is actually about a man who starts to do very well in life and everybody feels they have to bring him down. It's the sort of the tall poppy syndrome. They have to find something wrong with him. They have to ruin his career. And at one point, one of his characters is a lady. She, she calls this the human stain in the heart. And she says something like this. It's in everyone, indwelling, inherent, defining the stain that precedes your acts of disobedience and encompasses disobedience. The stain is, I justify myself by pulling you down, by making myself feel superior to you, better than you. I'm pure and you're not. 
the impulse that makes you say, I'm as good as you. I don't like you getting ahead of me. The impulse that says, I'm better than you, that's how I know I'm okay, is sin. And it's really at the root of everything from murder to racism and to all the conflicts that we have in life. Secondly, we look at the scope of sin. Now, as I was looking at this whole story of creation, I was trying to find a graphic that may uh, reflect uh, Eve being tempted by the serpent and Adam succumbing and them taking some... And, and this was about the only one, and I, I sort of knew that there wasn't going to be anyone under 15 here, and thought this was perhaps a good graphic to say, now, no wonder, uh, you know, poor Eve got sucked in by this particular uh, uh, serpent, but we won't hang on that, we'll go on to the, the next point. It's really important, as we look at the scope of sin, what the man does, so, so does the woman. The man and the woman are both equally ashamed. They're both equally filled with blame shifting and doing the same behaviour and they're both equally banished. There's no difference. One is not more sinful than the other. And that's crucial for us to understand. The Christian doctrine of original sin is that we are hardwired for selfishness and cruelty. It's not just a problem we have from bad examples or the environment that we live in. We're hardwired for it. The Christian doctrine of original sin is that we're all hardwired for it. All of us, across the cultures, across the races, across the classes, across the genders. Everybody. Let me show you how important that is. Remember what Jode said. He said we were... We were on the left because we denied the doctrine of original sin. We thought what's really wrong with the world was located in the capitalists, in the elites, not in the common people. But life showed him that no, sin is everywhere. He realised the mistake he made as a member of the left was because he didn't believe in the doctrine of original sin. He demonised a certain group of people and saw that is where the problem is. But the doctrine of original sin is it's in all of us equally. There's a very famous, oh sorry, I've gone too far. There's a very famous uh, letter that has come down to us from the Duchess of Buckingham. The Countess of Huntingdon, who had become converted to evangelical religion under the preaching of George Whitfield in the 18th century in Britain, tried to evangelise her aristocratic colleagues. She would send sermons by George Whitfield to her friends. She would invite them to come to, to hear them preach. And one of her aristocratic peers, the Duchess of Buckingham, often having been invited by the Countess to come and hear George Whitfield, sent her this icy note declining her invitation. And this is what she said. I thank your ladyship, but the doctrines are most repulsive and strongly affected with impertinence and disrespect toward their superiors in perpetually endeavouring to level all ranks and do away with all distinctions. It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl upon the earth. 
<laughs> it is highly offensive and insulting, so I cannot but wonder that your ladyship should relish any sentiment so much at variance with high rank and good breeding. Now, that's a certain period of history, of course, but we've got to make sure that that attitude doesn't come down the centuries to us today. And although we might not put it in those words, our attitude is looking down at others, feeling that we are superior. She's right. The doctrine of original sin levels people. The doctrine of original sin makes it impossible for people from the left to say it's those elites up there, not us common people. And it makes it impossible for people from the right to say it's you unwashed masses or it's you criminal element or something like that, not as virtuous people who have good breeding. She was right. Do you know why? The doctrine of original sin creates a radical democracy of sinners of whom we all are, but sinners saved by grace. If you believe in original sin, nobody is better than anybody else. You cannot look down your nose at a criminal or a drug dealer or a drug addict and say, there's a sinner, not me. You cannot think of yourself above the criminal or the drug addict because the original uh, because the doctrine of original sin says the same seeds of that kind of behavior is in your heart and my heart maybe it didn't sprout because you weren't in the very same environment as that person out there but the fact of the matter is that you're no better or I'm no better we're all sinners we all need god's grace The Duchess of Buckingham was right. She says, this levels everybody to say that I have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. That's what the Bible teaches. It destroys self-righteousness. And that's the reason that G.K. Chesterton says, Christianity preaches an obviously unattractive idea such as original sin. But when we wait for its results... They are pathos and brotherhood and a thunder of laughter and pity for only with original sin can we at once pity the beggar and distrust the king. We're all brothers and sisters in sin. We're all under judgment. We all have no hope except for the grace of God. Thirdly, we look at the impact of sin. Here's what we mean. Human beings are radically relational. That's what we're made for. In Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we're in the image of God and in the very relationship of the, of the Trinity, of the Godhead, in relationship with each other. We have been made in that image for relationships. That means we're built to reflect or to relate to God. We're built to be lonely without other human beings. We're relational beings. We live for relationships now. Some of us may be more people junkies than others. You know, some of us may like quiet space and to be alone, but for the majority of us, we we need relationships. What we see in these verses right here is every single relationship being destroyed by sin. Another way to put it is sin is a malignant tumour eating away at every ability to conduct any relationship. Sin destroys our relationship with God, 
It destroys our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and even our relationship with nature and the world around us. Look carefully and quickly. Most people in the world say they believe in God and they pray. But most people in the world do not actually have in minds the real God because most people, God, they, most people have a God they can pray to when they want to and doesn't really demand a loss of control of their lives. It doesn't really demand that they change their life. Haven't you seen that? Isn't that true a lot of a lot of us? In which case we're actually running from God and hiding from ourselves. In fact, we're running from God by essentially believing in a God who isn't holy, who isn't infinite, who isn't sovereign, a God created in our own imaginations, knowing there is a a power beyond ourselves and is going to look uh, mercifully and graciously to us, but a God who is not the holy, infinite and sovereign God of the Bible. So there's four ways in which we see these relationships affected. And the first is our relationship with God. God has, uh, that relationship has been destroyed as a result of sin. Our relationship with ourselves is destroyed. How do we see that? When Adam says, the reason I hid from you, I was ashamed because I was naked. In the Bible, nakedness is an idiom for something bigger than just being ashamed of being naked. Nakedness is a sense of guilt, that there's something wrong with me and a sense of shame that I need to prove myself, I need to cover, I need to keep people from seeing who I am because they'll reject me. Nakedness is a psychological dislocation, a lack of ease with who we are. Secondly, when our relationship with God is severed, our relationships with ourselves is severed. Our identity is unsure. That is to say, we really don't want to admit what's wrong with us. We really don't want to admit the worst about ourselves and what we're capable of. We see the one thing we don't want to believe is that we're utterly dependent upon God. We want to think that we, we, we need God occasionally or, or maybe even not at all, but in our heart of hearts, we know we're utterly dependent on God and therefore we are in denial about who we really are. That's where the shame comes from and that's where the guilt comes from and that's where this lack of ease with being able to admit uh, who we are comes from. And then thirdly, our relationship with each other is destroyed. We already saw some of that when the man starts to throw the wife under the bus just to save his own neck. Even the making of fig leaves in verse 7. As soon as sin came into their hearts, they covered up from each other. They sowed fig leaves to cover up their nakedness, but they were, but they were covering up their nakedness from whom at that particular point? God wasn't even around. They were covering up from each other. We cannot bear to have other people really know who we are. We have to control what other people see about us because we have to maintain power and control because our relationships are now power relationships, not love and service relationships. Our relationships with each other are messed up. 
Individually, we have superficial relationships, exploitive relationships, but corporately, races don't get along with each other. The genders don't get along with each other because our relationship with God is messed up. And our relationships with ourselves are messed up. So relationships in the world are messed up. Fourthly, the fourth thing that's destroyed by sin is that even our relationships with nature, the physical environment, verse 17 says, instead of just going out there and tilling the ground and up comes nothing but flowers and food, now thorns and thistles will come up. The dust is no longer your friend. There's a lack of mesh with the physical environment. There's a clash with the physical environment. There's no longer, it's no longer our friend. Now we age. Now we get sick. Now there are natural disasters. And now we die. We came from dust, but that's not going to happen in the end. Now there's a lady by the name of Irma Bombeck uh, who was an American humorist. And she wrote columns describing life in the mid-60s in newspaper columns. And she, at one point she said something like this. You know my life is dominated by dirt. At this end of the house there's dirt. There's dirt in the bathroom, there's dirt on the plates, there's dirt in the kitchen, there's dirt in the rug. So I work to get rid of the dirt and by the time I get to the other end of the house, the first end of the house is dirty again. It never ends. And in the end, after all of these years of struggling against dirt, struggling against dirt, what do I get? Six feet of dirt. (laughs) Now now that's almost exactly what God says in in Genesis chapter 3. In the end, the dust wins, apart from a relationship with him. Every one of our relationships has been decimated by this attitude of sin. And finally, fourthly, we see the end of sin. Now, what's God going to do about it? You know, even though the Bible has all kinds of authors, every one of the books has a different author, yet the Holy Spirit is the author behind the author. And therefore the Bible is, in a sense, a single book with a single author. And he, the Holy Spirit, is an incredibly good storyteller. What we have here in the midst of this incredible disaster is the most intriguing foreshadowing of what God is going to do about it in the future. First, look at the mercy of God's heart. He comes in and he doesn't belt them across the head, he doesn't strike them down. He says, where are you? What have you done? Have you done what I asked you not to do? What does God want with these questions? God could have not be seeking truth and illumination for himself. He knew where they were. He knew what they did. He knows the answer. The only reason God would be asking questions if if he's trying to give truth and illumination to them, to make them realise he's treating them as adults. He's not treating them as objects. He's not treating them as animals. He's not even treating them as children. He's doing what people in AA call an intervention. Now, I've been to a few AA meetings in my time, and you've, have you been to? No, yeah, not because I have an alcoholic, uh, an alcohol problem, but I'm over it now. No, I don't have an alcohol. But I've been with friends. And if you've ever been to an AA meeting, we used to have them in the city church. Uh, uh, they'd come together every lunchtime. 
and the guys would get up and say, I'm Alan Baker, I'm an an alcoholic. And then they'd go on and tell their story. And so in a sense, this is what God is asking Adam and Eve to do. He's trying to get them to tell him that what they should know, admit what they've done and say who they are to own it, to take responsibility. It's fascinating. He, he's sort of counselling them. He's seeking them in love, asking the questions instead of just telling them what they've done wrong. Now, isn't that something? God is, is trying to get them to, to see that. Secondly, we see the mercy of his hand. The second thing he does is that he makes garments for them. Now, we didn't read that particular verse. It's in verse 21 if you've got your Bible open. But uh, see, they sewed fig leaves all over themselves and when God makes garments for them, they need garments psychologically for privacy, but physically they need garments because we have a hostile environment and they need better things than fig leaves. And he makes garments out of animal skins in verse 21. Many people over the years, this is a better picture of Adam and Eve than the former one, heads down, shame, with the animal skins on them. Many people over the years have noticed this seems to be God's hint, a pointer towards the sacrificial system, toward the atoning sacrifices of the temple and the tabernacle and eventually the atoning sacrifice of Jesus himself. It was Derek Kinder in his commentary on Genesis on this passage says the coats of skins are forerunners of the welfare both spiritually and physically which man's sin makes necessary therefore social action could not have had an earlier or more exalted inauguration now that's interesting so we see the holistic nature of God's hand and we see the mercy of God's heart But what is he going to do? He looks at the serpent in verse 15 and he says, Because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Now there's a lot that we could say here, but here's what we have. Here's what we see. Do you know what the picture is? Imagine a group of people, a family, and into the midst of them slithers as fast as it can a snake, a poisonous snake, coming right at them. One man goes after the snake. He picks up the head and he, uh, sorry, uh, he, he picks up a shovel and he starts to whack the snake. Finally, he crushes the head and saves the family. But, but only after this encounter, they realise that in the process he had been bitten. And the poison causes his death. And that's the picture. What God is saying is, this is amazing if you realise this snake is not just a snake, but it is Satan. It represents evil. God is saying, one of the descendants of Adam and Eve, the seed of the woman, a human being, is going to destroy the power of sin and death itself but get a fatal wound in the process. A human being is going to come and he's going to destroy sin and death and in the process lose his own life. I wonder who that could be. You see, the first Adam 
should have done something like that not stood not just stood there let the serpent destroy his family the first Adam should have whacked the snake or stomped on the snake or whatever but the second Adam will it's Jesus Christ keep this in mind in Romans 4 Paul says in Christ your sins are covered verse 7 blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven whose sins are covered Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. The Bible says in Isaiah that when the Messiah comes, the suffering servant, he will cut off from the land of the he will be cut off from the land of the living. Jesus Christ went under the sword. He opened a new and living way back into the presence of God. He went first, and the sword slew him. He has covered your sin and my sin. Here's what it means to be a Christian. It's not to say I'm going to try real hard and to live a good life. I'm going to make a New Year's resolution. To be a Christian means to say, Father, cover my sin because of what Jesus Christ has done. Objectively, cover it by pardoning my sin, but subjectively, deal with the sin in my heart. I don't feel loved. I don't live loved. I'm trying to prove myself. I'm trying to get control. Let the love of what Jesus Christ did for me so flood my heart by the Holy Spirit, I can start to serve people. I can start to put others' interests above my own, just as Jesus Christ did. I can allow his life to live through me. You know what? A lot of people today in Melbourne are working so hard to achieve and a lot of people are really upset. I didn't get into that VCE score. I didn't get that VCE score I wanted. I didn't get into that course I wanted at uni. I didn't make that much money. I didn't achieve. I'm gaining weight. Nobody wants to go out with me. You know, all these things are things that that cause young people concern today. We get really upset because we're looking for beauty and we're looking for achievement and we're looking for accreditation and credentials. But do you know what? These things, they're fig leaves. They're ways of trying to deal with nakedness. We're trying to deal with that sense that there's something wrong with me and I don't know quite what it is. Now there is the answer in this Frantic activity. Let Jesus Christ clothe you with his love. Accept what he has done. Ask God to receive you because of what Jesus Christ has done and ask the Holy Spirit to make real to your heart what he has done for you. That will begin not only to cover your sin objectively so God accepts you and you go to heaven because of what Jesus has done, but subjectively, subjectively, you'll start to heal your heart of sin, the cancer. Not that the sin will go entirely, but you'll no longer be under the power. You'll no longer be enslaved to that hard wiring. It'll be short-circuited. The thing that's destroying all of your relationship because you're so nervous and so ashamed and you're trying to prove yourself and you're so needy. When the love of God comes in there, it changes everything. Ask God to cover you with the righteousness of Christ now so that someday you can be utterly covered with the very glory of God. 
Now, isn't that something? That is amazing. The last few scriptures that are on the on the on the outline that I've given you, Romans five verse twelve says, "When Adam's sin sin entered the entire human race." Paul says he sin spread death throughout all the world, so everything began to grow old and die for all of sin. Verse 19 says, Adam caused many to be sinners because he disobeyed God, and Christ caused many to be made acceptable to God because he obeyed. Verse 21 says, Before sin ruled over all men and brought them to death, but now God's kindness rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John 5.24 says, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but will have crossed over from death to life. And that sets us free. We don't have to cover up anymore because Jesus is living in and through us. Let's bow together in prayer. Let us pray. Our Father, we're so grateful that it's possible for us to know this horrible spiritual cancer sin has already actually been dealt with and is eventually going to be dealt with completely and is going to be over. Until then, we ask that you would help us to receive your salvation, to receive your grace into our lives in such a way that we can begin to more and more die unto sin and live more and more unto the righteousness of Jesus and be conformed to the image of your Son in whose name we pray. And the people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.